passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. For the rest of us, we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. We're going to talk about mercy. Now, when we think of, of mercy, we rarely attach the word severe to it, I would, I would guess. Um, and yet, oftentimes in God's economy, the way that God does things, this mercy, the, the idea of, of compassion for those who, who do not deserve compassion, mercy is all too often just that. It's, it's this idea of, of being somewhat severe, painful hard to endure. And yet at the same time, that mercy is sometimes painful and, and uncomfortable and not what we may want, it's also an incredibly good thing. It may be painful, but it is good. And this term, this idea of severe mercy, actually comes from a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote to a friend who was struggling with the sudden death of his wife. These this couple uh, was in their mid-30s, had recently become Christians. And in the context of this man's wife's death, he described this as perhaps a severe mercy from God. One author describing this mercy of God said this, it is not God's wrath nor God's malice that causes God to afflict those whom he intends to save. It is his loving, severe mercy, which would strip away all that stands in the way of true and saving faith. In other words, God sometimes in his mercy sees fit for us to experience hardship, experience pain, experience frustration, experience even loss, so that we might be drawn to him or for some of us be drawn back to him. And that's the context of this morning's passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's God's severe mercy that confronts David in his sin, that doesn't just leave him there, but confronts him, that tells him of coming turmoil in his family, that even brings about the death of his son. And yet this God is always merciful. But as we will see this morning, sometimes that mercy is severe. Last week, we saw that, God, that David, God's chosen king, this man after God's own heart, does the unthinkable. He commits adultery with the wife of one of his best generals, and then in order to cover it all up, he murders him, and he murders a number of other soldiers as a part of his cover-up plan. And David, by the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, seems to have gotten away with it. No one suspects, or at least very few people suspect. No one's the wiser. And we would say this is, this is a tragedy in 2 Samuel chapter 11 if it weren't for the very last part, the very last phrase, sentence of last week's chapter. It says this at the very end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. It says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And as we jump into 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to see that God at last responds to David's murder, his adultery, and we ask ourselves, what exactly is God going to do? Well, 2 Samuel chapter 12 splits into four parts. We're going to look at each 
and we are going to consider what we might learn of this severe mercy that God has for His people when we are trapped in sin. Before we do that, let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for being a merciful God, for not treating us as our sins deserve. Thank you for the gift of mercy. We ask now that as we consider your word, you would speak to us. God, I I ask that you would even use this story of of someone else's sin and and the example of David to, to bring to light our own sin. We pray for your mercy, even if that mercy is severe, if necessary. Help us, Jesus, to run to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, our chapter opens with a parable, this made-up story from the prophet Nathan to King David. Last time we saw Nathan was in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, if you don't remember, is this story of incredible, or it's this chapter of incredible promise for King David. God promises to David through his prophet Nathan that David's kingdom will endure forever. Now Nathan plays a very different role when it comes to approaching King David. Excuse me, Nathan plays a very different role. Pick up in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 12, as as you probably have guessed so far, is meant to be read in connection with 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the differences that are are found between these two chapters actually prove a very powerful point. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, God is not mentioned until the very last verse. And yet here at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12, we've already encountered God. God is mentioned at the very beginning. He's mentioned throughout this chapter. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is the prime actor. He's constantly sending his messengers, sending for Bathsheba, sending for Uriah, sending his messengers over and over again. But then when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, notice what happens. God is the one who takes the initiative. God, first thing he does is he sends his messenger, the prophet Nathan, to confront King David. God will not stand idly by and let his son, David, wallow in sin. Now, when Nathan begins talking with David, notice that he doesn't start off by telling him how wrong he has acted or how corrupt of a king he is being. He doesn't talk about David's wickedness. In fact, he doesn't talk about David at all. David is the king, and as the king, he is the chief judge in the land. And so Nathan brings this story that needs some resolution to King David. He would, have, he would have heard these types of situations before. This is something that we, he would be expecting. And yet Nathan makes this story up to prove a point. 
Nathan tells the story of two men. One is rich with plenty of livestock. One of them is poor. He only has one lamb to his name. The single lamb of this poor man is his prized possession. He even treats it as one of his own daughters. And one day, when a traveler comes to visit the rich man, the rich man begins planning a meal. This was custom in that day. You would serve your guest a meal. And yet this rich man was was reluctant to take one of his own countless sheep to serve as the main dish. The phrase, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock, literally uses this word pity in verse 4. In other words, the rich man had pity on himself. But he didn't have pity for his poor neighbor, so he took, just like last week we saw... Bathsheba was taken by David, just like we saw last week from 1 Samuel chapter 8. The king, like the nations, is a king who takes from his people rather than serving his people. And this man, this rich man, takes the only lamb of the poor man and uses it for food. David is understandably outraged at the selfishness and the wickedness of this rich man. That's the heart of David's reply in verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David still has some sense of right and wrong at this moment. He explodes in anger at the nerve of this rich man who takes pity on himself but shows no pity for his neighbor. David gets so worked up over this miscarriage of justice in his kingdom, the kingdom that he oversees, that he actually takes an oath swearing by the name of the Lord that this man deserves to die. How could such an atrocity happen in David's kingdom? Now, even if you weren't familiar with 2 Samuel chapter 12, you probably know where this is going, right? Nathan gets the exact reaction from David that he is wanting. David condemns the rich man, and in condemning the rich man, he condemns himself. And David doesn't even realize it. David has been so blinded by sin He has no idea that he himself has committed a far worse miscarriage of justice than what this rich man has done that stirs David into action. And I want us to just pause here before we continue in this story to remind ourselves of the mercy of God on display here in the very beginning of this chapter. When the Lord sends Nathan to David. This is the first truth of our passage. God displays mercy when he confronts us in our sin. God's mercy is on display when you are brought face to face with your sin. Have you ever considered that this is an act of mercy for David, something that David did not deserve from God? Based off of the record of chapter 11 to this point, the things of God are the furthest thing from David's mind at this moment. It is apparent from his actions that David is what we call a functional atheist right now. He is someone who is living as though God does not exist. Now, if you were to ask David that, 
You say, of course I believe that God exists, and yet actions speak louder than words. And his actions here betray a heart that says, I don't think that God exists, or if God does exist, he does not care. But does God abandon David? No. In the midst of David's blindness to his sin, God sends Nathan. Don't miss the order of events here because this is the way that God operates. He doesn't wait until David has woken up. He doesn't wait until David has realized the awfulness of what he has done. He doesn't make David prove he is sorry before he speaks to him again. No, even when David is caught in his sin, God sends Nathan. David may have turned his back on the Lord, but God has not turned his back on David. And that's mercy. Let's keep moving into our second section, confession. David has just pronounced judgment on this wicked man. When Nathan responds, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are that rich man. In condemning this rich man, David has condemned himself. Nathan reveals to David how sin works. We've seen this in our own lives as well, if we're willing to admit it. It is incredibly easy to pick out the wrong things in someone else's life. It is hard to do the same thing, to see that in our own lives. We seem to always have a justification for what we did. We're almost always ready with an excuse or a qualification as to why, well, it wasn't that bad for us. We always have a tendency to minimize what we have done. Nathan's words here leave no doubt as to the severity of David's sin. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. You see, David's actions on their own are absolutely atrocious, but they are somehow even worse when you consider everything that God has done for him. God has made David the king over all of Israel. God has repeatedly saved David from Saul's murderous threats. He has given David everything that was Saul's. The whole kingdom is now David's. And God asks or adds, I would have done even more if that wasn't good enough for you. God has showered blessing upon blessing upon blessing on David, and David responds with murder and adultery. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
God makes it very clear that David's actions here are not just a sin against Uriah, against Bathsheba, though they are certainly that. At the core of David's actions is a heart that despises God and despises God's word. David shows disdain for God and for his word by how little he thinks of them. There is a connection between our actions and God's glory. Our actions make a value statement about God's glory, for better or worse. So, when David is living a life of indifference to God and indifference to obedience to God's commands, he is making a statement about God and about how glorious this God is. When David is committing murder, when he is committing adultery, he's telling others, this is what I think about God. This is what I think about God's commands. This is what I think about God's glory. No wonder God is so offended by David's actions here. He's not just done something evil. He's dragged God's name through the mud. As God's king, he is the one who is meant to point the people of Israel to the true king, to God himself. He's supposed to show people what God is like. What kind of picture is David painting of the true God through his actions? Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David's sin will have devastating consequences. Sin always does. David committed murder and adultery in private, but God will bring judgment upon David through the exact same way, but in a public way. We might say, why? Well, God is declaring his own glory through how he he, he operates with David. David was meant to reflect God as the king, but he has failed utterly. God now brings judgment in a way that shows that he is a God of justice, that there is no partiality with this God. Not even David can just get away with it. And with that, Nathan finishes speaking. And I don't want to, I I don't think this is an exaggeration. What comes next is one of, if not the most important moments in David's life. He has been confronted with his sin. How will he respond? How will David respond when he sees all of his sin, not just against Bathsheba, not just against Uriah, but his sin against God himself? And here's why I say that this is one of, if not the most important moment in David's life. Because every time we are confronted with our sin, How we respond in that moment will set the trajectory of our lives. When you ignore 
the conviction of the Spirit. When you choose to continue in sin, when you harden your heart, do you know what that does to you? When you do it in that moment, it's not just a one-time decision. Every single time we harden our hearts, we make it that much easier to do it again next time. Every time we choose to ignore the prompting of the Spirit, we are building calluses on our hearts, making it harder for them to hear the conviction of God. And that's why I say David's response in this moment is one of the most important moments of his life. If he chooses in this moment to ignore Nathan, if he chooses to harden his heart, then he's taking the first step down a path that is very, very hard to come back from. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. His response is short. If you were to read this in Hebrew, it's only two words. His response is short, but what else is there to say? That long last David's sin has been displayed in a way that is impossible for him to avoid. He can't hide from it. He can't justify it. He can't explain it away. He can't minimize it. Ironically, if David were to say anything more than I have sinned against the Lord, he would be saying less. All he needs to say in this moment is I have sinned against the Lord. Now, later on in David's life, he will indeed say more. He writes Psalm 51, as I mentioned earlier, about this moment. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When David says, I have sinned against the Lord, it's not just an acknowledgement of guilt. It's a cry for mercy. It's David crying out for mercy. It's a recognition that he, just as he said of the rich man, deserves to die. And that's not an exaggeration. The law commands the death penalty for anyone who committed murder, anyone who committed adultery. 
David is doubly guilty and doubly condemned to death for his actions. So when he says, I have sinned against the Lord, he's crying out for mercy. He's asking God for mercy for him. And up to this moment, you see, David has been living his life in a haze. Sin has numbed him to the things of God. But when he is made aware of his sin, everything comes rushing back into clear focus. He realizes how dire his situation is, how wicked his heart is, how much he has tarnished the name of God with his actions, and he cries out for mercy. And we might say, well, what, how exactly will God respond? Verse 13 again. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David cries out for mercy. God responds with mercy. David will not die. No, no mistaking, this mercy will be severe. This child will die, and our hearts probably lurch at that. Uh, how can it be? David gets off scot-free, and, and yet this poor child is the one who dies, and, I, and we'll, we'll address that here in a moment. But don't miss this, this lesson here of what God's mercy is like. The this, this second lesson from the second section here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When we confess our sin, we lean wholly on the mercy of God. That's what confession is. When we confess our sins, we are leaning wholly and utterly. We are throwing our very, all of our lives on the mercy of God. We are with David at the beginning of Psalm 51 saying, have mercy on me, O God. You see, confession is a very churchy word, very churchy word. Maybe for some of you, it brings back memories of having to confess your sins to a specific person in order to receive absolution. For me, it brings back memories of a written prayer read every single Sunday in church. And, and I want to just say, while confessing our sins to others is a good and commendable thing, though the idea of absolution from a priest is not necessary can, in the context of Scripture, and while these, these pre-written prayers of confession are, are not just good things, they're, they're great things as long as our hearts are in them, don't miss the heart's of confession. Confession is a cry for mercy. It is running to the mercy of God. It is leaning wholly on the mercy of God. Remember what mercy means. It is compassion for those who don't deserve it. And when we confess our sins, like David does here, like what we read earlier from Psalm 32, this confession of our sins, we are asking for something that we do not deserve from God. We're asking for compassion from Him. That's the heart of confession. The text continues in our third section, intercession. With the news of David's soon-to-be-born son going to, to be sick and then die, David spends the bulk of his son's short life interceding for him, crying out to God to have mercy on his son, to spare him from this end. And this is a hard passage to read. 
We read after Bathsheba gives birth to her son, we read in verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child. There's, there's no room for guessing here of, of what actually is taking place. And we might wonder, well, what exactly does this mean? What do we make of this? If you were with us last week, one of the things that I mentioned in the context of David and Bathsheba, one of the questions that always gets asked from 2 Samuel chapter 11 is, what about Bathsheba? What does the text have to say about Bathsheba's guilt in this moment? And one of the things that I pointed out last week is that when we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that the text is completely and utterly silent when it comes to Bathsheba's guilt or her innocence. In other words, 2 Samuel chapter 11 doesn't even consider the question. The focus is solely, completely, utterly on David and what he did wrong. His sin. The point of the chapter is not a whataboutism, not about, well, what about Bathsheba? The point of the chapter is that David is guilty. Don't worry about Bathsheba. God will take care of that. David is guilty. And I think that's a helpful way to look at this moment here in 2 Samuel chapter 12 as well. The text is focused solely on David's sin and the result of David's sin. The death of his son is a tragedy. It is so sad to read. We don't know what God is doing. Just speculating here, 1 Kings chapter 14. There's this passage there where God is talking about the death of the son of Jeroboam, this wicked king. And he says that, that his son will die at a young age because God finds favor in him. And the judgment that God is going to pour out on Jeroboam's family, he alone will be spared. Could God be doing the same thing with the judgment that is about to come on David's family? I don't want to speak where God is silent, but, but that's a possibility. We don't know what God is doing, and yet we can have confidence about what this passage is not saying. It doesn't say that God is unjust. It doesn't say that God is vindictive. Sometimes God's mercy is severe. It involves pain and suffering and hardship. And God is going to use the death of David's son to further the work that he is doing in David's life. Whatever else we say about this moment, we can say with complete confidence that the Lord will do what is right. And that includes in the life of this little boy. Verse 15, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah bore, Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. went in there, most likely a reference to went into the presence of God, into the, temp, into the tabernacle. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. I want us to just consider 
this part of the story through the lens of severe mercy for David. That even though it is hard and painful, God is using this to draw David to him. Don't lose sight of David's spiritual state in this moment. David has repented, but his faith is still perilously weak. And in this moment of sickness, David has an opportunity. This severe mercy from the Lord. How will David respond? Our text tells us that David doesn't turn his back on the Lord, but he runs to the Lord. He spends the next week in fasting and in prayer, asking for the God of mercy and grace to show his son mercy and grace. And that might surprise us. Because we just read verse 14, where we saw Nathan say that David's son will die. But here's something that David understands about God that each of us has to take to heart. The character of God. David knows that God is a merciful God, that he has just experienced that mercy. And he knows that the God of mercy and grace may indeed continue to pour out more mercy, more grace upon David and his family. Here's the important thing to recognize as we are reading this. David doesn't know if Nathan's words here in verse 14, that his son would die, whether they are an absolute statement or a conditional statement. Two weeks ago, on Wednesday night, Crosswinds Kids, our, our Wednesday night kids ministry program, our kids went through the story of Jonah. And we read these words from Jonah. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the king said, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. God pronounced judgment on the people of Nineveh for their sin, but when they repented, the God of mercy and grace relented. He showed mercy, more mercy. And David knows that his God, our God, is merciful, that he delights to show mercy. That's what this God is like. And who knows if David will experience even more of the mercy that he has already received. David doesn't know the plans of God. He doesn't know the purposes of God. But he knows the character of God. And he trusts that character of God. That his God is a merciful one. And so he cries out. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is the thing you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David doesn't know the plans of God, but he trusts the character of God. And when his son dies, he does not despair, but he instead worships. His actions here remind me of Job's words in Job 1 and Job 2. Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In fact, David understands something that many of us may not and that all of us should take to heart. If we found ourselves in David's situation, having just been shown an incredible mercy from God, many of us would be afraid to ask for more. We would be afraid to ask for more. David just had the wickedness of his heart exposed. He has been spared the death penalty, but his, son, his sin will still have consequences. It will result in the death of his son. And I think many of us in that moment would be inclined to say, yes, I will bear the displeasure and the judgment of the Lord. Maybe, please, Lord, take my life, not, not this child's life. I know that I deserve it. But not David. David knows that the mercy of God is inexhaustible. And so having been shown this unfathomable mercy, he has the nerve, and I say that in a good way, to ask for more. In fact, that's the, the heart of this third section here in, in chapter 12. Our hope rests in the inexhaustible mercy and grace of our God. There is no such thing as too much grace and too much mercy when it comes to our God. Now, He may not answer our prayers the way we would like, but that doesn't mean that His mercy and grace have reached their limits. No, when, this Lord, this God, he delights when his children upon he is shown inexpressible mercy, continue to ask for mercy, continue to ask for more. And it's in this inexhaustible grace, inexhaustible mercy that's on full display here in this final section that we were given two short stories that give us great confidence and assurance that David, in spite of all of his sin, is not abandoned. The first is an assurance that the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David will never lack a son to sit on the throne, is still intact. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife, 
Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. In the course of time, David will have a son, Solomon, who will be his heir. He is beloved by the Lord, and in spite of all of David's sin, the Lord is going to keep his promises. Don't miss what this passage is saying. The Lord has not abandoned David. The second story says the exact same thing. This time focusing on David's victory over his neighbors, the Ammonites. God has not abandoned David. He gives David victory. Verse 26, now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and he placed it on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. In spite of all of David's sin, the Lord will not abandon him. And that's the crucial reminder for us this morning as well. God will never abandon his people. Never. Do you believe that? And in spite of all your sin, God will never abandon you, never leave you, never forsake you, that his mercy is unending. It may be severe. It may be painful. It may cause you hardship. It may cause you tears, but all those things are for your good, for his mercy for you is unending. He will never abandon you. A couple weeks ago, our family was reading through 1 Samuel 4 and 5. Um, This is the story of, if you're familiar from when we went through those chapters probably a year and a half ago. 1 Samuel 4 tells the story of uh, the people of Israel going into battle against the Philistines, the ark being captured as a form of judgment upon the people of Israel, and the chapter actually ends with the high priest Eli dying because of despair that the ark of God is captured. And we talked, as a family, we talked about Israel's sin, we talked about their presumption, God was just this magic trinket that they could use to get what they wanted, that we talked about the loss of the Ark of the Philistines. And one of the things that I explained to my kids about how big of a deal this was, that the Ark was lost, is that people thought that it might mean that God had abandoned them, that God had left them. And I couldn't even finish that last point before I was interrupted by my youngest, shouting at me, literally shouting at me at the table, saying, Dad, that's impossible. God would never do that. He would never leave us. He could not. He, was just not, he wasn't having any of it. 
The idea that God would abandon his people is not a category that even exists in his mind. Like, Dad, what, what are you even saying? How could God do that? You see, for my son, for God, if God's going to abandon his people, then he'd cease to be the God that my son knows. He spoke truer than he realized. 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's the reality of the cross, that because Jesus was forsaken, we never have to be. The cross assures us that the mercy that God lavishes upon us is unending. It is inexhaustible. It is without height, without depth. You can never out-sin, out-abandon, out-turn your back on the mercy of God. Here's the message of this chapter, and I don't want us to miss it. Though the Lord's mercy for us in sin may be severe, it is inexhaustible. You will never reach the end of it. God's mercy for you at times may be severe, but it will never run out. The cross guarantees it. In fact, the cross is the only way that such mercy is possible. How is it? that God, the, the just judge over the entire universe, could just overlook the wrongs of people like David. How's that fair to Uriah to experience this great injustice? And God says, ah, well, I'm going to be merciful. I'm just going to let it slide. How can God do that with me? How's it, how's it just for God to, to just pass over my sins, all the wrong that I have done, all the wrong I've caused in other people's lives? God's mercy is inexhaustible, but how can it be? Mercy only makes sense when we look at it in light of the cross. Where the penalty for all my injustice is paid in full. But the cross doesn't just explain how mercy is possible. It also proves that mercy is inexhaustible. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he's talking specifically about love, but he gives us these words of comfort and assurance. When we feel like we have screwed up too much to experience the love of God, the mercy of God, he writes this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor ruler, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, including 
inexhaustible mercy. The Lord's mercy for us may be severe. It may be painful. It may be the opposite of what we want in that moment. But it is inexhaustible. It will never run out. The cross guarantees it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the mercy that you show us. God, we ask that you would continue to be at work relentlessly, mercifully, bringing to light our sin. Even though it is painful to confess and repent, that we would enter into full fellowship with you again. Thank you for not giving up on us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.